take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war Welcome to the Thursday edition of Nurses Out Loud with Nurse Michelle. I have with me today Ashley Grog, a registered nurse who has a passion about the VAERS system, V-A-E-R-S, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And for those who've been following us since the start of Nurses Out Loud, you know that I started off my show with 20 vaccine questions for medical professionals. And if you did not hear that segment and you're a medical professional, you need to make sure you go take the 20 vaccine questions. If you're just curious about what these questions are that I am asking medical professionals, please go do it. Um, it's really fun to do. And then the next segment was 20 vaccine answers for medical professionals. And um, yes, my goal was to make sure that those out there in the medical profession did recognize that very likely you are not well informed about this topic. I've been asking medical professionals for about seven years now about vaccine um, details in general and have found 100% of the time that the medical profession is not well informed. So um, Ashley is a wonderful resource for us to be bringing in about this. I'm going to put my 20 vaccine questions as a citation in the show notes that anybody can go and click on easily. But Ashley's passion uh, for what she's wanting to bring to us today is going to be about the VAERS system. So it's a great topic to follow up what we've already discussed. We want the American people well-informed. The better informed you are, really the safer you and your children are. So if I'm going to just go ahead and let her come on and she can introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself, her background, and then we'll get into the VAERS system. Ashley? So great to be here, Michelle. Thank you so much. Um, really enjoyed meeting you this weekend and getting to spend um, time with you and and just enjoy all those freedom fighters. So like you said, um, I am a registered nurse, have been since 2006, um, received my master's in nursing education. And that's where I really, I love to be education. Um, I think we can solve a lot of the world's problems just by simply having a little bit more information. And um, I did cardiac care pretty much my entire career in the hospital, um, specialized in advanced heart failure, developed curriculum for patients and staff um, to improve uh, outcomes, and then moved on to um, help develop the heart failure program and get accreditation, national accreditation, um, through, you know, I, I was the one who pulled data from the charts, mined the data from the charts. Uh, analyze those metrics and then helped develop the interventions to improve 
quality outcomes. So reduce admissions and all those fun things. So I'm no stranger to data. Um, my vaccine journey began long before COVID. We quit vaccinating our kids uh, close to 10 years ago now. And then um, that was around the time that my third daughter was born or she was probably about nine months old. I couldn't let go. I didn't want to admit that vaccines maybe weren't safe and effective for everyone. Um, and that was a really tough journey. And that's part of what has you know brought me here today. And then I went ahead and did all the research again when my fourth daughter was born because she was born at 24 weeks. Um, she was one pound, 10 ounces and a micro preemie. So I wanted to make sure that I was mm. making the best decision for her. Everything I do is based off of individual, individual risk benefit analysis. And we have to make sure that we are achieving the best care for our patients. Um, we lose sight of that a lot, I think, with the protocols and the different ways that medicine is run today. So I'm just trying to bring a little bit more of that individualized personal care so people really are becoming healthier. Yes. Even hearing that you had such a teeny little preemie, I everyone that I know that was either a mother of a tiny preemie in the NICU received quite a bit of pressure to vaccinate that child. In fact, because the baby was such a preemie, the pressure was even greater. They were even saying to them, did you come under that kind of pressure as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I went into labor at 21 weeks and my doctor basically told me to go home and let it quote, work itself out. Oh my. Uh, that's what I was told. And I had a few words for him. <laughs> and left his office and went a more holistic, natural route. Um, luckily, my cousin's a chiropractor and I called him and I was able to get into the office and he was able to adjust me. And my contractions went from every two to three minutes with some, you know, natural remedies uh, going from the doctor's office to his office. And I had a contraction. And then he adjusted my pelvis using his activator. And that was the last contraction that I had up until like 24 weeks. I was doing a lot of different things. And I asked him, I'm like, I need your help. Please help me figure out some way to get her to viability, which is 24 weeks. And we did that. Um, Without any drug intervention, like breathing? No. Wow. We, we had, um, I, I had another physician who practices, um, NAPRO um, progesterone therapy. I was on progesterone injections, but it wasn't enough to increase my progesterone levels. And so I went and saw one of the other doctors here. I consulted with them and I had asked my, my high-risk OB if we could do compound progesterone injections. And he was uncomfortable doing it because there wasn't enough science, right? Um, but I was losing my baby and I saw this other doctor and he, he saw me without a, an office like copay. He had me come in. He heard like my story and he's like, just come in. When can you come in? And so he started me right away, like did lab work and then started me right away on the, uh, the progesterone. And I do think that that helped um, because it was just insane. And that, that whole story is a, a bunch of drama. I was anticoagulated on Lovenox because I had a PE at 12 weeks and, so all she's a miracle. She's truly it's it's a wonder that we are both alive. Um, so 
Yeah. And here's these kind of stories, um, you know, a preemie story. I, I just want everybody to recognize that sometimes, sometimes it doesn't take a nurse, but if you're a nurse and you're presented with, a, you're a preemie in a, a NICU with your new, little teeny baby, and you have medical professionals telling you how important it is for this child to receive artificial things to be injected in it, to, um, to sustain it, to, to protect it. It, there's something that kind of jives inside your head that says something's wrong with this message. There's something that just doesn't match with that. And maybe a lot of moms out there have felt that conscience thing hit them too, but there's this just a presumption that the medical profession knows best. And I think it's the nurse that has been trained um, to always question and to never assume that just because somebody's in a white coat that they have the right answer to to be able to become this fighter that says, no, I don't think so. So that's just um, a little a good segue into what we're going to be talking about today, because um, what we know, what we know for sure, I can say with authority that the, uh, for so many years, there are so many doctors that do not even know anything about the vaccine industry, the vaccines, the components of the vaccines. Um, anything about the, their mandatory requirement to report and anything about their responsibility to actually see through an injury. So if those things are all true, that doesn't all of a sudden make a physician capable of saying to a parent, oh yeah, vaccines are good no matter what you should do it, especially for this newborn little teeny preemie that just you know is barely holding on to life right now. So that that's just an amazing little detail. What's, what's terrible about that situation is I, I, I thought to myself, we're not vaccinating our other kids, but this child is different. This child had a, they, they told me 5% chance of living. Okay. Mm -hmm. Surviving, you know, birth and then living after that. And so I, my thought process was at that time, I know that they're going to ask me about vaccines. I know that they're going to push these because she doesn't have an immune system. She's not going to be able to protect herself. And so I went into the research. I still had access to all the databases and stuff like that. So I could go research. There was not a single shred of solid evidence that, that these vaccines would work. And actually, it was really surprising because they gave a laundry list of why this population of micro preemies or even just preemies probably won't have the appropriate or desired immune response and develop antibodies. So it was saying right there that you're taking this risk and you have this, this long list of items to where they may not even get the, the desired effect. And so it was really interesting. And this is going to lead into VAERS. You know, I'm sitting here having this discussion because the neonatologist walks in the room and I'm, you know, holding my baby and he's like, oh, Ashley, you know, vaccines don't cause autism, right? And I knew that was coming. Know your enemy, right? Yeah. And I, I said, I don't want to talk about autism. Let's talk about increased apnea and bradycardia. Let's talk about reintubation. So apnea and bradycardia, when the baby stops breathing. I don't know if your listeners are primarily nurses or not, but. That would be a apnea, slow heart. Bradycardia, we do want to tell them that, that bradycardia is a slow heart. Just define that whenever you. Yeah, use low heart rate. And then apnea is when they quit breathing for a period of time. Reintubation, when they have to put the breathing tube back down. Um, and then length of stay and cytokine storms. And you might be familiar with cytokines. It's an inflammatory response that can cause inflammation or does cause inflammation. And 
Um, this has been a big issue with COVID. So uh, that's what I brought up to him. And again, this is long before COVID. She's six now. Um, but I said, these are the things I want to talk about. And he leaned back on the sink and has his arms crossed on his chest and says, hmm, we do see an extremely strong immune response with Pentacil. <laughs> and then it was silence. And I just waited. Like, I waited because I wanted to see him walk through those things in his mind. Because what he's describing is an adverse event. The low heart rate, the apnea, the reintubation, all of those things are adverse events that we should be watching. Post-vaccine. Yeah, post-vaccine. And this is a direct result of vaccination. It's occurring, you know, right after vaccination. And so if we're really about doing the science and getting the best information for these patients, we had better be paying attention. But instead of continuing down that rabbit hole, he pops up and says, well, I think you should get X, Y, and Z and walks out. And it was amazing because there were multiple nurses who thanked me for not vaccinating her. Really? Because they, they're the ones who witnessed they know. decline. They know what happens. And they're not reporting. Yeah. So I, that's a wake up call for a mama right there. You're already in a crisis. You're the mama. You're not the acting nurse. You're a nurse mama. And you're having to advocate for yourself and nobody's advocating for you. Well, they're scared to say anything. And I think that was one of the inspirations with writing this education is because we live in a world of cancel culture and hate and disgust for any idea that is not part of that narrative, right? And that's a scary place to be. Not everybody is, you know, brazen, I could care less. Not everybody can afford to lose that job. And so if we're really trying to solve a problem, and for me, the problem is unnecessary patient suffering. Right. Point blank. Right. We have all these people. That's what's motivating all of us. And I feel comfortable saying that and speaking for the entire, quote unquote, anti-vax or medical liberty, medical freedoms movement is we want to stop the suffering. Mm -hmm. That's what brought us all here. And so the way that I see that I can do that is by offering up this education and information that people have no idea about. And, and is some of it willful ignorance, perhaps, but let's give people the benefit of the doubt and see how they respond to quality education that gives them the foundation to stand on. Because when when you're asked to be brave and you don't feel like you have the knowledge, it's much more difficult to stand on faith alone. But when you have that background of information and, and fact, you can say, no, look, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to do the right thing here. And I think that really changes the whole paradigm and gives people a freedom um, to to do the right thing. So, oh, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, some a book that we'll be talking about that Ashley has created and published is There's Aware Practical Education for Healthcare Personnel. So it's not just for only healthcare personnel, but it's going to be definitely targeted toward them. And we'll let her tell you all about that. But um, her goal, like she just said, is through education, through informing the medical community, perhaps bravery will follow because it always does. 
when you feel more informed, you feel empowered and you're more likely to speak out and take that role that you have oathed to do, which is to advocate for a patient. So um, going forward with, before going right into that, do you remember how we had talked a little bit earlier, but how much did you get taught about the VAERS system as a nursing student? I mean, people presume that we do know a lot about this. And of course, we know all these things about vaccines because we went to medical school or we went to nursing school. So um, I'm a 35-year nurse. You are how many years of a nurse? Since 2006. So I'm encroaching on 20 years. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So that that's a big span. And I've um, interviewed some younger nurses. Um, and the story's always the same. So let's hear what yours is for a 20-year nurse. Yeah. So the the education we received in school was, a, I don't even know if it was 30 minutes. It was, here's the schedule. Here are the diseases we vaccinate. If you don't vaccinate per the schedule, people will die. I do remember distinctly, though, them saying you don't vaccinate a child who is sick because their immune system is is otherwise occupied. And they may not develop antibodies. So you're you're giving them the risk without the benefit, right? And so I do, that is one thing, but we did not learn about theirs. We did not learn about uh, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program or VICP. Um, none of that, you know, vaccines were safe and effective, period, end of story, moving on. Yeah, looking back, um, so I am a graduate in 88, so the VICP had just been passed in 1986. So it's very likely that for my class of nurses and doctors that are as old as I am, because I'm more than half of 100, um, for any of us that were back in that era, um, it wasn't even being notified to the public. The public didn't know that the federal government was all of a sudden given this protection to a vaccine industry that was requiring protection because it was about to go bankrupt because of all the litigation, because of all the injuries that were happening to children in America following vaccination. So it is quite profound. I mean, I guess in this day and age, we can say uh, no surprises that the government does something stupid um, that doesn't really uh, work for the best for the people. But if the medical people are out there telling politicians, um, the American people are all going to die if we don't get them all vaccinated. I see how you can convince a whole bunch of politicians that We've got to do what's best for the public. Yes, some people are going to um, suffer consequences. And so you got to protect us from all this litigious situation. And some have got to take some for the team. And it, yeah, it may be your kid, but we've got to protect ourselves. I mean, because literally you got it'd be worth it to go back and listen to the debates in Congress to see how that actually went down and get passed. And we should probably do it. But go ahead. Back to your There's, nurse there's so home. much. I think that happened outside of those hearings and meetings. And I, I don't know that we'll ever fully know and understand, but you know, you're right. Nobody realizes that the act of 1986 occurred. They don't realize that the government was put in this position where if they wanted to continue the vaccination program, the national vaccination program, they had to give liability protection to the manufacturer because there were so many injuries that they could not make a profit. And then if you frame that against the profit margins that they're making off of vaccinations these days, you know, my kids ask me, mommy, if vaccines were good, would we get them? And, you know, I, I say, yes, if I felt that they were safe and that they would work and it, the risk 
you know, was outweighed by the benefit, then yes, we would. But unfortunately, the science is not there to support that. And and I also tell them we know how to treat these illnesses. We know how to take care of our bodies, you know. And so I want to be clear, if if the benefit outweighed the risk, I would consider it. And that's evident by the the way I redid, redid, <laughs> read, recompleted the oh. education or the and the research when I had my my fourth child. You know, I want the best possible outcomes and I'm willing to have an open mind. And if I, you know, somebody proves me wrong in some way, shape, or form, I I will gladly admit that. But um getting back to you know to theirs, this is all about, you know, improving those patient outcomes because really if if we reported adverse events, and there's a difference between adverse events and reactions. Um, An adverse event is any health condition or concern that comes up post-vaccination, it needs reported. There, There are three types. There's reactions, which can be directly linked to the vaccine. There are unrelated health problems, which would have happened whether they had the vaccine or not. And then there's um, health problems of unknown origin. So they don't know whether it was the vaccine or if it was something else, pre-existing condition, whatnot. But all three of those things really should be reported to VAERS if we are trying to detect safety signals. And, and if we do, the purpose is not necessarily to you know, get rid of all vaccines, I know some people would like that and I catch, you know, a lot of heck for saying this, but if if we're asking people and people want to take this risk, we should at least be prepared to support them if they incur a negative consequence. And this is going to impact our society on so many levels because of their ability to be productive members of society and contribute to have and raise their families. Um and then you know, everybody likes to talk about healthcare costs in the healthcare industry. Think about the long-term healthcare costs that we are going to incur with all of these conditions and issues associated with, you know, if we want to go there, autism. Think about that. Think about the cost, um, not just the cost on humanity, but the financial cost. So that's really what. Well, we have a about. we have a child who was. Um, vaccine injured at the age of 16. And now we know for sure it it also happened when she got her first MMR at the age of um, two and four. And we would call, uh, we have six children and she's literally a million dollar child. Um, If we were to actually add up all the costs, it costs us for assessments, diagnosis, psychological exams, psychiatry, medications, interventions, hospitalizations. And she's 25 years old now and her and her journey isn't done. And her diagnosis list is tremendous. The amount of financial strain on a family, you know, for one child to have that kind of a problem is significant. Marriages are destroyed over finances. So you have, like you're saying, a societal problem where the family cannot sustain the pressure of the finances, all because of a financial problem with one child's injury. And when a family is under the stress, I mean, I've been in the federal vaccine court for seven years. So in that federal vaccine court journey, there is no support, no help. Nobody even nobody even knows there's a federal vaccine court. And a doctor is shocked that it even exists. So I can't even get them to write a um, intelligent um, opinion on a mechanism of action for how this happened to her. So 
And then you add in the fact that there people are dismissed. Oh, there's no way this is in your head. And, and in your case, there is psychological damage, but for these, these parents or even adults and look at the way that people are being gaslit about the COVID vaccine, there's that whole aspect. And so it's, it reaches into society in such a profound way. So the, the, again, the purpose is to just create awareness. So that way we can improve the quality of life of these patients. And if we don't know that there is a problem, we can't give patients the appropriate risk benefit analysis. We also aren't going to be developing treatment protocols. We think about the injured that we met this weekend. They're, they're being dismissed. They're given, you know, here's the prescription for whatever, and they send them on their way, but it's not helping solve the issue and they're at their wits end. And so creating the awareness that adverse events do happen. We do need to get the good true science because VAERS is the vaccine adverse event reporting system is the only system that covers nationally. And if you read their objectives and you can read this in the in the literature, it talks about finding unknown adverse events. It talks about new you know, tracking newly licensed vaccines. It discusses um, being a national safety system for public health emergencies, like, I don't know, COVID and the the H1N1 flu that went through. Um, and then issues with administration, handling, um, and, and all sorts of other things. So it's really so much more. Yes, yeah, some things have come out during this COVID vaccine that some people who got it punctured into their blood vessel versus their muscle versus their fat, that there's different outcomes based on that. And all of us nurses are talked to, you know, we're trained about an intramuscular injection versus a subcutaneous versus an intravenous. But um, the administration, you just mentioned that, that there apparently is a different outcome if a, a nurse or whoever's being paid to administer that vaccine administers it in the wrong way. And are they trained to put it in the right way and identify the body type? But everybody's that's, the same. that's the thing, though, is I was talking to some um, younger nurses and we were always trained when you give an intramuscular, you're going, you know, for the muscle that you always pull the plunger on the syringe back to make sure that there's not blood return. Right. right. That's that's the way we were always trained. And they don't do that anymore. Um, and I just thought, well, that is really silly because, you know, you're taught the five rights, the right patient, right dose, right med, all the things, right route. And here we are opening ourselves up for this, you know, potential issue, administration issue. Um, so again, just about uncovering these things. It's not about placing burden, but it's about just doing the right thing by our patients. So when we come back, we're going to talk about um, specifically this wonderful um, resource that she's created. Um, and But before we do come back, I want her to go ahead and give the location where we can find that resource. And then we'll talk all about it when we come back. Um, so just on our website, VAERSproject.com, V-A-E-R-S project.com, you'll be able to find um, shareable graphics and more information as well as a download for um, the entire book as a pdf great we'll pick right back up there after the break it's time and this is you wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands what about washing your nose 
I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R dot com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the backside of Nurses Out Loud. We're going to get right back with Ashley and let her tell us all about the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, a w- um, practical education for healthcare personnel that she's written and why she wrote it and what it has to offer and why you need to get it. It's going to be included in my show notes. Um, so you will be able to get a direct link to it, but she'll tell you also how to go to her website. So go ahead, Ashley, and tell us about this. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to be back. Um, so to, to start out, what what does this education offer? It's written like continuing education, and I am working on getting um, contact hours for nurses and physicians. So that way you can use this towards your license requirements if needed. Um, but it's exactly what you would see with any continuing education, because that's what we need. We need to have um, the awareness that this exists, the legal requirements for reporting, and and all the things. So it's written in a format that you can understand. It's all cited and sourced um, from the FDA, CDC, HHS, etc. Um, but it just talks about what VAERS is, what to report, how to make a report, how to educate your patients. Um, you know, there are a lot of limitations and barriers to reporting to VAERS. It's not exactly user-friendly. Um it's just, there's no education out there. So it's kind of a mystery and enigma too. And then there's the concern of if I put my name to this documentation, am I attesting that this is a vaccine reaction? Am I going against the narrative? And so you kind of got to break down all those barriers um, and work through that. And so when when I was putting the information together, I knew there was more to it. So there's the Harvard VAR study um, done in 2010, where they found that less than 1% of adverse events were reported. And I always wondered, because I worked in data, I know how you can skew that information. If you're not an ethical, moral person, you can pretty much make data look any way you want it to. Mm-hmm. Um And I wanted to know where they got that from. I just found it really interesting. And so 
I, God was kind of nagging on my heart, nagging on my heart, go read it again, read it again. And I had already read it probably 50, 60 times. And I did, I read it again. And I had always glossed over the bottom of the page. And at the bottom of the page, it talks about the system that they used because they had always said it was something that integrated with Epic electronic medical record or the charting system that doctors and nurses and hospital systems use. But it integrated with that. And I thought it just worked with Epic. As I researched into this website that they listed on the footnotes, the creators of this program linked it all. And you could see exactly how they got this information. So it's free software that anyone can download and use with any electronic medical record. And so it's it's just insane and mind-blowing to think that we could have automated reporting. Wow. Automated. It takes the burden off the provider. It removes those time constraints. It removes how, you know, healthcare silos are the separation of specialties. Like you go to a cardiologist and you go to a pulmonologist and you go to neurologist and how those different healthcare silos or, or separations inhibit the ability to identify adverse events and, and other health problems in general. And so that is a key part to this is understanding that automated reporting is possible and that this this system was actually used they tweaked the um algorithms and they were really only looking for things on the vaccine um injury table and so they weren't looking for new or um unexpected adverse events they were really you know trying to pull this list from this list um, kind of and, the purpose of what bears is supposed to do is supposed to be not just capturing what they expect to happen, but what should, what was not expected. Yeah. That's a new signal. And, and doctors could say, yes, I want this reported or no, I don't want this reported, or they could just ignore it. And so this, this initial study that said less than 1% um, was validated. They trimmed down the qualifications to reduce the number of alerts to providers and it came back still at about 3% of adverse events are reported, just, just 3%. And so I feel like that was very validating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to know how bad is this problem? How bad is the lack of knowledge in healthcare workers about this? And so I, I did a search. I did multiple searches with different key phrases, different search engines and all the things looking for continuing education or any education on VAERS. And I found nothing, nothing current. I found one piece of continuing education that you had to go behind a VA firewall um, to access and it was outdated. But, you know, in nursing, we have to do a, a training every year on how to wash our hands. And yet you have this legal requirement to report adverse events to VAERS and there's nothing Yes. And think about it. Every single baby being born every single day, I don't have the stats right now off the top of my head, are being told they should have the hepatitis B vaccine. Yeah. And that's actually what the the hepatitis B is what triggered my journey. My daughter was sick with pneumonia and was in the hospital and she was discharged. And at the follow-up appointment, just a couple of days later, the doctor wanted to vaccinate her. And I said, no, I think we'll wait and we'll come back because I didn't want to give her vaccinations while she was sick. And he got in my face and started yelling. I went to work, was up on my unit because I was working in the hospital later on in the week, you know, and 
I was talking with one of my peers about what had happened and trying to decipher if what I did was wrong because I like to do the wrong or the right thing for the right reasons. I don't want to do something wrong that's going to hurt my child or whatever. And little did I know infectious disease had walked around the desk and I thought I was going to lose my job. And Mm. the doctor grabbed a chart and tucked it under their arm and said, I, for one, think it's asinine. We give hep B on the first day of life and walked away. Oh, not wow, not another statement. word. And that is what prompted me to start like, well, why wouldn't you, you I know, just want to pause for that. Just hear, let people hear that and let it sink in. That doctor um, may not have felt safe to be able to expound on it and give this nurse a whole bunch of information or even he may not have had the opportunity to even because he was so busy with his own patients, but he did a brave act in saying that. And by doing that one brave act, he planted a seed in the mind of all that heard it to question. And all of us are capable of saying something somewhere all the time to someone and just leaving people with a question of Socratic reasoning, just let them have to answer their own mind and their own conscience about a a seed you plant with them. So I'm really very proud of that doctor. You know, um, God knows who that person is and that he did a great act because here you've got somebody now publishing information to educate. He didn't fully educate, but he inspired a nurse. And because he did that, at least one person in auditory range is now taking that to a whole nother level. So go ahead. Yeah. And it was infectious disease. The, mm-hmm. the, the very physicians for hepatitis that, that would be dealing with this is the one that started it all for me. And that is so profound. And I've since then, because this is, this was over 10 years ago, I mean, it took me a good like 18, maybe not 18 months, but pretty close to quit vaccinating fully, you know, and it, it planted that seed and gave me, because why, and this is a thing, this is why I think we need to have a little bit of compassion and we need to start with this education. We need to give them the benefit of the doubt because as a a medical professional, why would I question something that is the the, the most important medical um, achievement of the last hundred years. Why would I question that when there are so many other problems that I could focus on and, and help people heal, you know, and, and so their minds don't go to those places. we, We don't even think about it. Every single child in this nation is just lining up with their parent, holding them in a pediatric clinic, getting shot in arms and legs multiple times per visit and just walking out like la da this is what we do. This is what good parents do. So yeah, I see why um, people are being raised up as warriors on this topic. It is affecting everybody in this nation. We just don't, it's not being talked about the implications of these illnesses that these children now have that our society has that is, you know, uh, epidemic we're taking for granted it goes back to possibly this mass injection campaign. Yeah. And so now we take that to the next level. We have providers who think that they've been taught that minimal, but this is the right thing you do. And if you don't do it, people are going to die. They're not educated on the fact that there is this system out there for reporting because adverse events do happen. Injuries do happen. And in fact, they're unavoidable. They're going to happen even, and this says this in the 1986 Act, even when the manufacturer does everything right there will be people who are injured, you know, profound. 
And so stepping back into this education, I didn't want to just, I don't want to solve problems that aren't there. <laughs> if, if it ain't fixed, don't broke. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, that's what my, you know, grandpa would say, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I did a small survey. Um, I think it was, I think it started in June, May, June. It only took a, a couple months, if if that. And I got responses from a wide variety of people, but for statistical significance, I pulled out the nurses and there were a hundred responses from nurses in Indiana, um, 50, some over 50%, I, I can't remember if it's 53 or 57% said that they administer vaccinations in their line of work. I had administered vaccinations in my line of work to acutely ill individuals, and I didn't know about VAERS. And so, you know, I I asked that question. I said, you know, what is your level of knowledge surrounding VAERS or something similar to that? And, you know, the the one answer was, I I don't know, I've never heard of it. One is I've heard the name, but not much more than that. And then the last one was I have a working knowledge. And 68% of those nurses said that they had a working knowledge of VAERS. That, That wasn't satisfactory because people claim that they know about it. But then the next question I asked was, if you needed to make a report, would you know where to go to do that? 76% answered either no or incorrectly. 76%. So that kind of negates the whole idea that 68% have a working knowledge. Apparently they didn't. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't. They don't, period. Um, So I I also asked... um, you know, have you ever cared for somebody that had a vaccine adverse or a vaccine reaction? I think I said reaction, not adverse event. And 36 people or 36% or people responded stating that they had potentially cared for a person with a reaction that did not get reported. Mm. So they're recognizing that they've seen or witnessed something that could have been a, an actual reaction and it was never reported. And we had, I, I think it was um, 12%, maybe 14% that said that they were discouraged from making a VAERS report. And so getting this information on what's required, what is right is really important because when you go through the different websites, whether it's VAERS, um, their actual website, the FDA website, the CDC website, you're kind of looped through this maze of links and it's really difficult to decipher. You know, how do you know what you should report, what you shouldn't, who reports, who is legally responsible for reporting? And in the 1986 Act, it says healthcare providers. When I think provider, I think somebody with prescriptive abilities. That's not the case. Uh, it's anyone who can administer or who's under under whose authority can administer a vaccination. So if you're an ordering physician, um, NPPA, whatever, if somebody is giving vaccines to your patients, you are legally obligated. And it goes another step further to say that the entities, so the hospitals, including government entities, are required to report. So the the refusal or the ignorance to report is not just landing on one person. It's anyone, you know, anyone. We all share that responsibility. And I think that that's a really important 
And yeah, but again, they do want to um, now everybody thinks they know something about theirs since 2020, because now it's being talked about in the media all the time. But the first thing that said is, oh, anybody can fill out a report. And the first thing I make sure people understand, well, it's a federal crime that's punishable by fines and imprisonment if yeah. you falsely send a report in. So did you discover what percentage are actually even not medical professionals doing the reporting? Uh I have not dug into that. I have not gone into that aspect because I feel like at this point we need just such basic information, who, what, why, when, where, how. Exactly. <laughs> we, we need to start there and then we can, you know, kind of dig into that. This is the first layer of education. And really what I would love to see, because VAERS is a passive reporting system, there's nothing that pulls these automatically. It's completely dependent on the patient or the provider recognizing that an adverse event occurred. And then you have to fight this politicization of vaccine adverse events and, and reactions. And so how are we ever supposed to do this? And I look as a former heart failure nurse, I look at myocarditis and pericarditis and it burdens me so heavily to think that if we had really truly worked with VSAFE or VAERS with these vaccinations, how quickly would we have identified these risks? How many patients could we have advised? Or could we have put out commercials with all the, the commercials that we saw? Why couldn't we have educated and why aren't we doing this now? Okay, fine we've maybe made a mistake of rushing this vaccine. We know that it's caused injury. So we own that. And the way that we heal this country is by helping those people that took that risk. There are citizens. And we need yes. to be healthy. What is going? I get so this, you can tell that I'm hyped up with this. The people can't see me flailing my arms, you know, <laughs> but I get so hyped up over this because, okay, fine. Mistakes whatever you want to call what happened, it happened. I cannot change the past, but I can absolutely change how I act and what I do. And this is what I try to instill in my kids. If you make a mistake, you do your best to mitigate the, the negative consequences. And we are failing, failing our people on this. Yeah. So if for no other reason then we help alleviate the suffering of one person. Let's do it. Because if we educate these guys who are having mild symptoms of myocarditis and we can say, hey, don't play football today. Let's get a cardiac workup. Here's let's, a list of recommended workups to be requesting from your doctor. And let's treat inflammation. Mm -hmm. and, and let's do these things to preserve your heart muscle. And then maybe you can have a great full high quality of life for as long as possible. Because at the end of the day, those are the things that matter. Yeah. The mass cover up that looks like it's trying to happen right now. When I look in the news and they say the exhaust fumes, gardening, um, getting up, happy early, heart syndrome, like, yeah, that all these crazy reasons are why we're having this mass increase of cardiac events. 
Um, I, I It literally shows you that they are afraid they're going to open up Pandora's box on what is really going to come up, what's going to come out to the American people's eyes if we actually admit that a vaccine could do this because it matches the narrative of the dreaded anti-vaxxer movement and they cannot let that happen, it looks like. But the, the more they deny that, the farther they push people. And that's what's happened. You know, so many people that chose traditional childhood vaccinations are now coming out and saying, OK, I don't know that I can trust this because we've been lied to. And they're they're not even admitting when they have made mistakes and when we need to correct course. I was reading an article from Michigan <clears throat> and it said it was about a, a cheerleader coach, a cheerleading coach who saved some kid who went into cardiac arrest while playing basketball and used the AED. And it's it's about putting AEDs in more places, which great. I, we need to do that. Like that's the right thing to do to help save these people's lives. But in this article, it said um, we've had multiple saves this year. How, how, when I was in high school, do you know how many cardiac arrests happen at school? Zero for me. <laughs> yeah. Zero. Yeah. We didn't have anybody drop dead. In fact, I remember, I have a son with a rare cardiac condition that if he had been a person that had not have been found early, he would have been that kid that would have died on the um, football field or basketball court one day. In fact, he was actually in a uh, second degree heart block known we oh. knew second degree heart block playing basketball and wow. his heart rate barely hitting 50 um and he was pumping it and doing so well and then he went in he got the flu and went into total complete heart block and um, ended up with a pacemaker so That's Dr. had drawn to the public's attention that there are certain things that once a person has a major cardiac event, assessments are done and they're like, oh, this person has an undiagnosed genetic malformation or some kind of cardiac defect or some kind of cardiac arrhythmia. It's explainable. Um, but that's really easy to find really as soon as they, they, okay, this is why it happened. When you, in the absence of those explainable reasons, that's the only thing we should have heard about over the decades past. But now we're hearing about things as if it's now the new norm. It is not the new norm. And we want to make sure people know that. So getting back to the VAERS, um, the book that you have, when people finish your booklet, what do you feel like they have been empowered to be able to do? Will they be able to know how to report and, and feel like they know the process? Yeah, you'll be able to make a report. You'll know what you need to have. Um, I have resources included that walk through what's required information and then additional information. I talk in there about that additional information is key. If we're really going to try to drill down risk-benefit analysis for patients, we need that additional information to see the subsets of population who are at higher risk for certain conditions. Um, you're going to be able to educate your patients. So the, the resources in there, if I do say so myself, are phenomenal because you can print these out and throw them in your exam room drawers and you can you can have your MA interview the patient because you want the the interview you want the information that's being submitted to be as thorough as possible. I wouldn't recommend this. I think that providers should be making these reports because they're going to have clinical insight. You know, if if a patient is capable of making their own report and will follow up with that, fine. But it is your duty and your responsibility, especially for these severe adverse events to make those reports. That is your duty to humanity. It would to make those like it reports. Would be 
a good thing to add to the reporting system, the patient's firsthand account, their subjective view, and then the doctor's objective assessment of what the, so it's like, okay, we can now hold the doctor account to say, okay, they reported this thing. What did you do to assess that particular report of a subjective complaint that they had? And what's beautiful. So only one report needs to be made, but if you save, so the other, the other thing in here is how to educate your patients. It's bullet pointed. You can read right off the sheet and, and then there's a matching, a mirrored page for your patient with the information at the top of the sheet. This was your reaction. This is when it started. Here's your confirmation number from VAERS. And then it tells them to educate other providers. So again, we're, we're helping spread this information and create this awareness and decrease the emotional trauma on these patients who are being denied, dismissed, and whatever. And so it's just kind of this cyclic, you know, um, tool that, that you can use to not only educate yourself and, and hold up your responsibility, educate your patients because VICP or vaccine injury compensation program and for the COVID vaccine, the countermeasure injury compensation program, they have time limits. If you don't report within a certain time limit or file, um, a, I think it's called a request, within a certain time frame, then you don't get any compensation. You have no help. For the VICP, I believe it's three years that you have to collect all your data and file with the Vaccine Injury Compensation Court, um, the Federal Vaccine Compensation Court. And then with the CICP, you only have one year. So by the time most from of the, the people... From the, from the date of vaccination. Yes. No, from the date of vaccination. Right. So if you got a vaccine in January 2021 and nobody even told you there was a CICP, I mean, was it even on the consent form? People need to be exposing this. And you are already at January 2022. We're January 23 now. That time is supposedly passed. That's it's so unjust. If you look at the, you know, the packets of information that they're giving out, like for kids, it's eight pages. Parents are not reading that. I'm sorry. The government told me that this was safe and effective and I'm getting it and I'm done. So they're not reading that. So it's, it's our job as medical professionals to do that. So again, you'll, you'll learn who, what, when, where, why, how. You'll have the resources for making the report, for educating your patients and a handout to give your patient. You can just print it out and use it. Um, Let me give everybody something that she's aware of that I'd love her to use as an example, that people want to dismiss the validity of theirs and the purpose of theirs. Like it's something like it's an insignificant system. Tell how the Rototech vaccine actually was discovered to be a problem through the VAERS system. Yeah, this is in the education too. So you'll be able to read about it and you'll be able to see um, it's cited in there. But it, it took over six years for that um, to be identified. And unfortunately, into susception or the telescoping where the intestines fold over themselves and then they become necrotic or die because they, they lose their blood flow. So the tissue, you know, it's like putting a string around your finger, tying a knot around your finger, your fingertip turns purple. And then if you leave it long enough, that tissue will die. And the same thing happens with intussusception or the, the telescoping of intestines. And that clustered between um, three to six days after vaccination. And this could have easily been dismissed. But for whatever reason, doctors were reporting that. Thank goodness. But it took six years to identify. 
the earlier that parents identify, oh my gosh, my baby, you know, is it's three to six days after my baby is unconsolable. They're not eating their, you know, bowel movements have changed, yada, yada, yada. They can get into the doctor's office and hopefully we can have the prevention of bowel loss because in some cases they're resecting, removing a large portion of bowel for those those kids. And that can be very um, difficult. So something six I years about is that. too long. Right. Yeah. Something I want to say about that for the medical professionals listening who want to minimize anyone saying that vaccine injuries happen, have the false understanding that if something gets injected into your arm, the only place you could possibly have a problem is within your arm. We have a virus vaccine for a rotavirus GI problem being mm-hmm. administered to children in their arm and, to, and damage. It was, it's oral. Oh, that one was oral. That was an mm-hmm. oral one. Okay, so here, but either way, their their minimization of the way that it's administered is presumed to be associated to the administration site. And here you've got a kid who's got a direct impact of a disease process called intussusception happening to his gut, his or her gut, that's going to potentially cause him to lose that gut. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Inflammation. And that's another thing is you know, people always ask me, what's the time frame? The The injury table says 46 days, but as clinicians, we need to be thinking about this. And again, this VAERS AWARE project, this is the first step of probably many, because we have to start thinking critically about how long does it take for our clinical symptoms to manifest? Inflammation doesn't just happen overnight. We are seeing that happen rapidly. In some cases, we're talking weeks, but what's going to happen long-term? Are we going to see issues? I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to stop there, but go get the education, vaersproject.com, V-A-E-R-S project.com. Share it with your coworkers. We have um, meetings. um, If you, there'll be a number in the show notes that you can text the word share. If you're a healthcare professional who wants to help get this in your community, Um, We would love the help. I talked a little bit about that automated reporting. And if we want that to happen, it's going to take grassroots movement. It's going to take pressure from the clinicians to push that forward. So please help us share this information. Let's do right by our patients. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me. Wherever you listen to podcasts, tune in to Nurses Out Loud and subscribe and rate our show. Help us by sharing these stories. As you learn truths, you too can shine the light and expose the darkness. Help us put out a bounty on the real misinformation because we are in a war for truth. It's time